What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Frederick Haga. Frederick is the co-founder of crypto analytics platform Dune. The business has only 16 employees and was founded just three years ago, yet just raised nearly $70 million in Series B funding at a valuation north of $1 billion. We discuss his fundraising journey, building through crypto winner, the future of analytics on the blockchain, and more. This was an awesome conversation, and I hope you enjoy it also. But before we get into it, let's quickly run through today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've been wearing a Whoop for several years now, and it has made a massive difference in my life. It's the only tech product that I wear 24-7, so it's pretty cool to see people like Patrick Mahomes, Rory McIlroy, Michael Phelps, and Justin Bieber wearing one also. Whoop automatically measures your respiratory rate, oxygen level, resting heart rate, heart rate variability, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. Sure, it might sound complex, but Whoop interprets the data for you so it's easy to digest and actionable. And now, their 4.0 is officially back in stock and shipping in real time. But here's the best part. Whoop is offering my listeners 15% off their Whoop 4.0 right now with the code Joe at checkout. So go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P dot com and enter Joe at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now feel healthier with Whoop. Next up is 8sleep. 8sleep has dramatically improved my daily performance. For me, I was never able to get a good sleep because I was always too hot. But now I am falling asleep in record time, faster than I have before all thanks to my 8sleep Pod Pro cover. The Pod Pro cover by 8sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. You can add the cover to any mattress. The temperature regulation will create the optimal sleeping environment by adjusting to each side of the bed based on personalized sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature. The results are proven to be true. 8sleep users fall asleep up to 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by 40%, and get overall more restful sleep. And it's not just me who sleeps on an 8sleep. The product is so good that it's garnered the attention of CEOs, Olympians, UFC champions, and even the Mercedes F1 racing team. So go to 8sleep.com slash Joe, that's J-O-E, for exclusive Memorial Day savings through June 6. Cool down this summer with 8sleep, now shipping within the USA, UK, Canada, and Australia. All right, let's get into this episode. Joe Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of Joe Pompliano and his guests are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion by Joe or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, I'm here with Frederick Haga, who runs Dune, a crypto analytics platform. Frederick, how are you? I am great. Excited to be here. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. So I have a lot of questions to ask you. I want to use our time today to learn more about what you guys are doing in the space in general. But I feel like I have to start with something that seems pretty obvious to me, which is you guys just raised the Series B. And you didn't raise $65 million. You didn't raise $70 million. You raised... $69 $69 million, $240,000 Series B at a billion dollar plus valuation. What was that conversation like? Who, do, who started that? Did you guys come up with that and say, that's the number we want to do? Is this just kind of a play on the joke that has become popular at this point? Just like walk me through that decision. Yeah. So, so it was 69.420. And I think in general, we just prefer to have uh, fun over not having fun. And that's the general thesis being crypto allows you to to have a bit more fun than in most other industries so honestly we were just sort of in that territory for the round and then um, 
when sort of stars aligned, we we figured why why not just do the mean number? Yeah, it got us actually a fair bit more attention than we thought about. Like we didn't think of it as like a huge deal when we, when we did it. We're just like, oh, let's just like do this number, and then especially beyond like the core crypto circles, I think a lot of folks picked it up because of the number. So I mean that that's great. We Free PR, I'm all for it. But yeah, yeah, in general, it's just deciding to do the fun thing whenever you can. I love it, man. That's a good policy to have. Just choose the fun thing when you're faced with two options. So that's great. I'm a big fan of that. But let's start with Dune in general. If you could just give a little background exactly who you guys are, what you do, so everyone's on the same page. For sure. Yeah. So we're a community-oriented analytics product. So anyone can go into our website and see charts on activity on the blockchain, mostly smart contract blockchains right now. So basically what we allow people to do is to analyze the activity as they want to. So essentially a blockchain is a database, but it's kind of hard to work with because it's made for verifying transactions, not actually exporting or serving data per se. So basically what we do is to take that data out of the blockchain, put it in a format and and system that's more performant and easy to work with. And then we let anyone go into our website, see all of these tables with, with the activity on the chain. Like that could be a Uniswap trade or something like that. And then you can write SQL, like a query language on top of that, and you get results. Uh, so you get a table of results. You can turn that into a visualization and you can compile all of these into a dashboard. So this is all free and open. So anyone can go to our site, see a bunch of dashboards, click onto them, see what analysis was underneath it fork that, make their own version and so forth. So we kind of bring the openness and composability of, of the blockchain into the data and analytics layer and make that easily accessible on our website. And you don't even have to be a developer and then you can monitor anything that goes on chain, really. Yeah, so if I can say it in an overgeneralized sense, just so people understand exactly what it is, I think that your description was perfect. I would add that it basically makes it so anyone like me or you or anyone that doesn't have any experience with crypto in general can go online on your website and search for data and analytics around blockchain transactions, right? So if you think about the blockchain, it's really helpful because everything's clear, transparent, and it's used to verify transactions. But it's extremely difficult to find aggregated data in a clean capacity without a platform like yours, right? So you guys give people the ability to go and, and if you want to call it write code or whatever it is, but you're able to make these dashboards where you can see, for example, the daily volume on OpenSea. You can see how much the last trade was for CryptoPunk, right? You can see all these different things and, and aggregate it in one kind of place that has good visuals and so forth, right? So let's start with how the product works today. Like, how do you guys make money? Who uses the product and so forth? Yeah, so we're very focused on the community side of what we do and, and having it free and open. And that's where we've spent most of our time. The way we think about monetizing is essentially when people want to keep things private. So everything on Dune is public by default and you kind of contribute to the community effort. But if you want to just keep it for yourself, maybe there's investment purposes or other reasons that you want to contain sort of what you do on Dune, then you can pay us for that. Or if you want to export the data, take it out of the application. Or if you want more performance, you know, refresh, higher refresh rates, these things. So these are basically the main things we monetize. So you can think of it basically like GitHub, where there's a lot of things that you can do for free, but the moment you kind of want to go into more private or closed territory and not contribute to the broader community effort, then you pay for that. So essentially, that's how we think about it. But for now, it's very, very focused on on the free users and just growing 
access to to all of this. And how does that work? I guess you were leading into it a little bit at the end there, but is there basically just a massive focus on getting people onto the platform? And then you realize that there's going to be a certain subset or a certain percentage of people that filter down to a premium or a paid version and et cetera? Yeah. Yeah. That's basically the thinking. Gotcha. Okay. So before we get too far into like how the business works today and what it might look like in the future, I want to talk a little bit about your story because I reached out to you when I saw the article, and, and I think you wrote about it on Twitter also, about your guys' fundraising round. Just so people have context, you guys are now valued at north of a billion dollars. You just raised nearly $70 million in a Series B. You only had or you have currently 16 employees, and it's been three years. So a super fast-growing company from a valuation standpoint, even though the employee base is still small and it's only been a few years. Talk to me about, let's start with like the first year, maybe, right? The first couple of years where you were out there hustling, trying to raise money. I believe you started it, I guess, in crypto winter at this point, right? Where maybe we had already seen that first run up in some of the crypto assets, but then everything went back down and, and people were skeptical of the space, right? So just talk me through kind of how difficult it was to raise money in that environment. Yeah, no, it was absolutely brutal, to be honest. So we, we started doing in the summer of 2018. Me and my co-founder were Norwegian. So we started out of Oslo, Norway. And this was obviously pre-pandemic as well. So sort of your location kind of mattered for a few things. We had this thesis that a lot of people are going to build on smart contract platforms. And sort of obviously Ethereum was the most notable one back then. And then we thought that a lot of people are going to build on these systems. We had in our previous like corporate jobs, experimented with smart contracts, built some try to figure out the data for it. And we know that if you build a product, what you want to do is understand who's using it and who's coming back and is it growing in these things, right? So we figured this is a new, more meaningful financial system. People will build on it because it has a lot of attractive properties. If they're building on it, they want to understand how their products are actually pairing. And that's when we we found the idea of, of building something like Dune where you can more easily look into this data. So that was what we started with, but it was certainly very, very different times. So on Ethereum then, maybe there was like 10, 20 products that were actually working beyond sort of, you know, ICOs and, and pure token contracts. So the market was very small. In general, investors were very, very non-interested in the space. So even the crypto dedicated funds were very skeptical of sort of the, the size and need for these products, given how early everything was. And then all other investors were basically not interested in the category at all. So we spent seven months trying to do our pre-seed and we had no salary for seven months. We basically... I definitely didn't hire anyone. We didn't even pay ourselves, right? We even found paying customer after three months. So Dharma, that recently got acquired by OpenSea, became our first customer. We traveled around to hackathons in San Francisco, Berlin, and so forth, and tried to pitch this idea. And we did manage to, you know, build something useful, get a paying client. But nevertheless, the investors were not super convinced. So that, that was a really hard time. We learned a lot about building something useful and being very, very clear on what we actually should do and, and prioritize. When you have a lot of money, you know, you can just keep building things and not really think that hard about it. But we had to think really, really hard. And one of the changes we did was to really take this community approach. So instead of building like closed paid dashboards, we got a bit of pushback on sort of how defensible that was from the investors. And we've said, okay, actually, this is correct. Like this 
space is so different that what we probably should do is embrace this openness of the data instead of sort of building against it by selling a closed product. So that hardship in the beginning really shaped us and made us think hard about our business and our product and made us pivot and change direction a little bit to what Dune is today. So that was very hard, but also extremely important for us to figure out how to add the most value and build the most impactful thing. And then, so we had basically two years of of very hard times. We did a pre-seed. We didn't hire anyone. We almost sort of took out very little salary in general. Then I think we did five attempts at doing a seed round. And we even went to SF in February 2020, right before the pandemic, and tried to do a $1 million seed round. And no one wanted to do it. So we basically went home empty-handed and kept not hiring and just kept building. I have one question based off of that, right? I think about this a lot, and I think most people realize this, but like a lot of this is just based off timing, right? If you have an incredible product, but it's the wrong time, it cannot work and the company can fail and vice versa. If you would have gone out and tried to raise money last year for this product, my guess is you would have raised it pretty quickly and pretty easily, right? There was just so much funding out there, so much dry powder, and people were looking for these opportunities. Were you guys ever close to not continuing, right? Because in my mind, I'm hearing that you're flying to hackathons, you're going to San Francisco, you're spending months, you're not taking a salary, you're trying to build this product, but you're not getting any help from the funding perspective. You're not able to leverage your time. You're not able to hire employees. You're, you're probably depleting your savings to some degree. Like, just talk me through that experience and, and the mental side of that. Like, was there ever a time where you guys thought actually about giving up? Definitely, definitely. We had some really hard times, especially before we did the, the pre-seed. So basically, we had kind of saved up for three months or three, four months. We were kind of like, okay, if we get a, some users or some traction or a customer within three, four months, we'll hustle hard to get to that point and then we can race around. And what happened was like, we did get to that point. We did get that traction, but that didn't turn into investor interest or, or checks, right? So after we, we sort of realized that fundraising was really hard, we spent three, four months not knowing if we would ever see a paycheck or if this would ever yield us anything and, and with depleted savings and all of that. So certainly it was a really hard time. And, and we went and met Binance in, in Denver, Eat Denver in February 2019. And they ended up accepting us into their accelerator program. But at that trip, we were literally discussing like, what will we do when we get back home? Because so we can't do this anymore. We don't have any salary. We don't, we're not getting anywhere here, even though we have users, right? We definitely were very, very close to having to do something else because of the lack of funding. And it was very real. And it's very hard when you don't know if or when. You don't know if it's actually going to come today when you get, get the salary. It's a lot of uncertainty and it's quite hard. But it's also, as I mentioned, a nice discipline. And I think the virtues of building in sort of a bear market is that you get this discipline. And I think it seems pretty clear that that sort of crypto is, and, and the world for that matter, is, is entering more of a sober phase going forward, right? And, and I think that's going to be healthy in, in many cases because you get this discipline. And this is sort of what set us up for success, I think, because we had thought so hard, we had worked so hard on, on establishing that we do something useful, that we're thinking about this in, in the most powerful way. And we had to test that because we didn't have the cash to just keep at some idea without actually verifying it. So yeah. Gotcha. So 
if I'm looking at the timeline correctly, right, the pre-seed and the seed took you guys almost two years combined to raise both of those, yeah. right? A yeah. year and a half, maybe two years to, to do two both years. of those. Yeah. And then I'm looking at your website right now, and the fundraising time went down to one week for the Series A, <laughs> right? So you go from basically spending 16 months trying to raise a, a pre-seed or, or a seed, and then you take a week to raise a Series A. What was the inflection point in there? Like, how did that work? Why did that happen? Yeah, no, there's certainly two very, very distinct faces when it comes to sort of fundraising experience running June. And I mean, that was two years of just constant no's and like a lot, a lot of headwind. And then what happened during 2020, there was DeFi summer, people started sort of using smart contracts more. And we had this position of being the place where you can check all of this activity and all the yield farming and different things that went on. We were in a good position. and. Sort of for the seed, we managed to get that together and we had some, some solid growth. And then the, the whole space, of course, just kept escalating and we kept growing and sort of our growth work rates were very impressive. And then so about half a year after the seed, we had hired like five people. We were still kind of small and, and careful with who we hired and how we did it. Yeah, at that point, it, there was a lot of like inbound investor interest, which was <laughs> different than, than before. And then essentially, we, we decided to do around because the demand was so strong. And then the whole thing sort of went way, way faster and escalated way more than we expected. And that was definitely overwhelming and very, very different. And you hear always about sort of being a hot startup or whatever, and, and the VC sort of FOMOing. And, and that was certainly like all in on, on that experience. Are you guys still building out of Norway? Yeah. So me and my co-founder are based here, but we're hiring remotely and have the team across Europe and the US and looking at more time zones as well. So we've always been remote first, and we've always been very mindful that crypto is global. The pandemic and these things didn't really change anything for us. Yeah. Gotcha. And how do you think about the regulatory side of this stuff, right? Like, obviously, it doesn't probably impact you guys nearly as much from an analytics perspective, but I assume that there is some thought process around being located or building in different areas or locations. Has that ever been part of the conversation and just like your general idea of, of staying in Norway versus building elsewhere? Yeah, honestly, not that much. So we certainly keep an eye on, on the regulatory stuff. But for us as a business, as it is right now, we're quite straightforward. We're sort of general SaaS or kind of boring old revenue generation, which can be a blessing and a curse, I guess, in, in, in this world. Yeah, we're, we're keeping an eye on it. But I think for us, we're more concerned with just the general development of the industry and what's possible to do or not do in the space. And of course, sort of we want the space to succeed and see the sort of open finance and monetary systems being built out and, and prevail. And so that's more of my concern than exactly where we're based per se. Gotcha. And how do you think about the future of this data, right? Because I think some people probably look at this and they say, hey, look, it's all open, right? Someone can go on and build a, a better visual or whatever it might be. But you guys obviously have a, have a head start. Now you have the capital. You're going to hire the right people and do all of these things and hopefully continue to push that forward. How do you think about actually building this company and like what the future product might look like? Yeah. So I think if you think about the opportunity here, if you look at data historically, there are kind of two two things that stand out to me. That is, data has always been very private. <laughs> Anything that's like produced within the product or system is something that belongs to that company. And it's analyzed and digested 
as a team or organization and always like very, very close. So it's an inherently very sort of limited environment. And then also, if you think about financial data, that has been very real time, but that is just sort of metadata, right? So what is the price of this stock? And like everything you think around financial data is often very live, but it's also very limited. It's only the financial markets. But what's the case in crypto is that you have these you know, essentially public global backends that people put code on and operate on, which is these ledgers, right? And that produces data that's public. And that is a total game changer because, well, first of all, the, the data is public, right? So instead of having this closed, limited environment that you've had previously, now anyone can actually, you know, build on top of each other and you can let it compound. So you can actually sort of aggregate these insights. And instead of sort of people on like Wall Street sitting next to each other in, in different buildings and doing the exact same thing and like for their clients in the, their closed environments, in crypto and with a product like Dune, you can see, oh, someone did this. I'll just use that. And if you want to change something, you build on top of that, right? And that's the fantastic thing you get with, with open source and, and composable systems. So I think that is a fantastic thing and a huge opportunity. And then it's the fact that these products are built on blockchains. So you can actually look into the product. So usually in finance, the only thing you have real time is the price and related things. And if you want to understand the traction of a product, you go into their quarterly report, right? So if you want to understand how's Facebook doing, you look at like a PDF that they put out every three months. But in crypto, if you want to know how like Uniswap is doing, you can literally see real time how many traders are there, what are they doing, what's their volumes, what's the distribution, how many of these traders use other products as well, right? So there's this insane accessibility of information that is real time accessible to the, anyone in the world. And I think this is makes sort of crypto data a way, way bigger thing than anything we've ever seen before because of this open real timeness and the depth of it, how insanely deep you can go if you want to. And I think when this space matures, people will look more at this than kind of the meta metrics around, you know, exactly who's holding this. If you can actually look at, okay, there's a downturn, which products actually have sustained traction, which folks actually use these products still, right? As you mentioned, like there's an open C dashboard on Dune and you can see the actual volumes of users and like, what are they doing, right? So you can really see what's going on under the hood. And I think that is a pretty mind-blowing thing. And even we've seen people building sort of like financial statements on Dune, which is pretty mind-blowing. So you can take like MakerDAO, a stablecoin system, and you can see oh, these are the revenues. These are the costs. This is the balance sheet of this system that is more or less like a bank, right? So you have a real-time access to a dashboard displaying the actual financial statement. And it's feeding right from the blockchain. You can see it on, on dune.com. You can fork it. You can inspect it and all that. And I think these dynamics are pretty insane and still like heavily underutilized. And I think this is the opportunity we're going at and being as open as crypto is, that, that changes the dynamic, right? And our company and our product is extremely centered around these communities, around the sharing. And I think the way we think about that opportunity is that it's like 
it's bigger if you embrace that than if you take the old model of just building something closed, pay wallet, and pay for access to that and have some in-house analysts trying to curate it. Because of the open nature of this, it's also so hard to keep track. I, I think it's the only way to solve this scalably is to come together as a community and say, you know, let's build on top of each other instead of only building in silos and, and sort of gating access to everything. Because it's so fast moving. There's so many parts at all times evolving, right? And it's very, very hard to make sense of that if you're just one person or one company. But if you say, let's just take these hundreds of thousands of people that's out there that care about this stuff and get their minds together and get them, enable them on the same platform, that is a huge opportunity. And then eventually some power users can pay for extra features if they need it. But the knowledge base is out there for the world. Yeah. One of the examples you use, which was the quarterly earnings reports, right? And this is something that I've talked a lot about and I think is becoming common at some degree, which is that I think the vast majority, if not all publicly traded companies are going to have to do this at some point, right? Because not only is it increase transparency, it reduces fraud, it reduces manipulation, it reduces all these other things. But I think investors are going to demand it, right? Why do we have to wait every three months for someone to tell us how the business is going, what's going on, et cetera? And we can look on chain for not only revenue, sales, transactions, all of these things, but you can see the supply, the distributions, all these different things, right? Regardless of the asset that crypto allows you to do. But that leads me to the question of like, how do you guys determine your TAM, right? Your total addressable market? How do you figure that out? If I'm sitting here and saying like, okay, all of financial world, all of, of the business ecosystem is going to be doing this. Like, how do you even come up with number? Well, I think that we, we don't, essentially. We, we fundamentally, from like first principles, believe in you know, these systems as, as more meaningful financial systems that are open, that are programmable, that are real-time across the globe and is innovation and sort of entrepreneur-friendly versus the, the closed and sort of legacy and, and very sort of slow systems that we had from before. So we deeply, deeply believe in that. And I think what made us succeed in the beginning was that like we kept believing in that while investors were like, yeah, no, what is the TAM, right? And they say, oh, here are like 10 people building a smart contract. That doesn't sort of sound like a market to me. But for us, it, it all made sense all along the way. Like, and, and independent of the price, independent of the sentiment, fundamentally, I think you know this is the type of financial system we want and it makes more sense. And sometimes people get too excited about it and sometimes people get not enough excited about it. But as long as you keep building on something that's useful and provides value to folks along the way, we, we think that makes sense. And I think then the opportunity will come. Right? As long as you're rigorous about adding value about growing whatever engagement that you have on your, your product. I think that sort of will take you a long way. And then it's sort of the, the collective effort of the space to become as big as it can. And I think one thing that we really hope to enable is this increasing the pace of the evolutionary loop. So you know, when you build a product, you try to understand who's using it and whatnot, and then you learn from that. And in the previous world, that only happened inside organizations. And maybe you write a blog post, like, we learned this, and then it failed. In crypto and on the chain, you can actually see the source code of what people are building, and you can see the traction that that product brings. So you, you have this insane learning loop spinning way, way faster and way more accessibly than in any other industry before, right? And that's something that we aspire to to enable and, and share this knowledge. And so if you're starting a new project, you can actually see who did what, what were their approaches, what were their 
products like and how many people actually showed up and used it. I think sort of that's just like one of the many dynamics that crypto has going for it that makes it so much more potent and exciting than legacy finance, if you will. Gotcha. I love that. I want to ask one more question, and this is sort of a, a fun, maybe even a short one, but you wrote this blog post called Started from the Bottom when you raised your last round. And I'm going to read a little excerpt of it, and I just want to ask a question or two about it. So you talk about all the different fundraising rounds, right? How long it took for each one, how much money you raised, et cetera. You give people a very open, clear, transparent, similar to your business, look into how you guys have built the business, raised money, et cetera, which is very cool. And then at the end, when you talk about the last round, you say that you guys weren't raising money. A venture capital firm reached out to you guys and wanted to learn more about the business, you know, poking and prodding around, trying to see if they could invest. Eventually, after a call, they wanted to invest $50 million at a $500 million valuation, which was, as you put it, a very solid markup from our Series A just half a year earlier. So six months earlier, you had done the Series A, assuming you still had a good amount of money in the bank. They said, well, we want to invest $50 million at a $500 million valuation. You guys weren't raising money. You told them. And I quote from here, make it a billion and we'll see. <laughs> they did that and you guys raised the round. Like, that's some baller shit. How did, how did that happen? How did that go down? What was their reaction? Like, just talk me through that. Yeah. So we had certainly learned what it was like to be in demand when we did the Series A half a year earlier, as I talked about. So we had a fair amount of confidence by them. And I think we had a fair amount of confidence in what we were doing. I think they, they deeply believed in, in what we were doing and, and sort of displayed that conviction very clearly. We were also very adamant or clear that you know, we, we don't have to have much more cash right now. And so we had just learned the hard way sort of uh, you know, not being in demand and then being in demand and, and felt like we, we had a good chance to do a fantastic round and, and didn't have to do it right now. So yeah, I guess we just had leveled up our negotiation game. It's a little different on the other side of the table, right? That, that probably feels much better. Yeah, it's, it's certainly a better feeling to be in, in this position of strength. Yeah, I mean, I must say that they're amazing. Like, it's really cool to see sort of these guys, Code 2, have been very, very rigorous in terms of understanding what we're doing and doing that outside in, which is very impressive. They also displayed to us that they understand what we're doing, that sort of they're impressed and, and have gathered a lot of in insights. So they also sort of, at that point, had shown us very clearly that they're extremely on board with what we're doing and, and had great faith in us. But yeah. Yeah. I feel like at that point, you knew that the money was going to come at some point, right? If you wanted to raise another round and you'd be able to pick from the investors. So it's not about them doubling the valuation because you could have gotten really whatever you wanted at that point within reason. So it's more about like, yeah, they make sense and, and they're a good partner. So let's do it. Yeah. And I'll note that like at that point, we had up to like 175% month over month growth in terms of sort of analysts on, on June, right? And sometimes the VCs go crazy just because of pure FOMO maybe, but like, you know, sometimes they actually see something that, that looks very, very potent. And, you know, seeing growth rates like this makes you feel some type of way maybe when you're a VC, right? So, and I think that that means that they're willing to go quite far. And I think this is honestly like, for instance, an interesting um, contrast between like some candidates and like investors because investors really understand exponential growth and see that like when you're growing tens of percentages month over month right that compounds really quickly and it really matters if you get in as an investor like three months earlier than for the next sort of phases of growth right 
But candidates, on the other hand, actually often sort of oversee the importance of this. So, so I think that's an interesting observation and, and sort of maybe somewhere where candidates should be a bit more mindful of like the growth rates at the, the companies they're looking at. Yeah. I mean, they clearly valued getting in earlier than necessarily the price that they were getting at, right? It's, it's much more about getting in the deal rather than the value of the deal. But how has this last question would be, how, how has this changed your mindset as an operator, right? Now you have money in the bank. You're not searching. You're not traveling the world to try to go find investors. Now you can just focus on building. Like how has that changed you as an operator? Not a whole lot. We, we tend to spend most of our time thinking about how to build out the product, how to build something useful, how to grow our community, let more people get onboarded to do and, and these things. And that's frankly still the things I think the most about. Of course, we can go harder at our ambitions and we can grow our headcount faster. But we've always been very clear with sort of ourselves and with our team that fundraising is not the a means to an end or it is a means to an end and the end is building and creating something useful not the raising money in and of itself so for us sort of the mindset hasn't shifted that much the pace at which we can go at it has increased but that's basically all all the change i love it well you guys are building a super impressive business obviously you're scaling fast and you're doing good work. I use the platform. I know a bunch of other people use the platform. So it's incredible. I appreciate you coming on, Frederick. Where can we send people to find you on the internet or learn more about Dune in general? Yeah, we have bought this cool domain, dune.com. For a month, we just put a Rickroll on it, but now we've actually put it to good use. So you won't be sent to Rickroll on, on YouTube anymore. You can actually see dashboards. So yeah, in the spirit of having fun, we're, we're on dune.com and, and we won't uh, troll you anymore. I love it. I love that you guys like to have fun too. That's always important in building a business. But Frederick, thanks so much for doing this and we'll have to do it again. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Palm Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day. And I'll see you next time.